Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yeah. did I catch you in the middle of a yawn? You did. Oh, you look worn out, David. What what has your weekend consisted of? See? Uh, <laughs> mostly unpacking. Unpacking. Uh, I mean, moving. Yeah. The moving didn't take as long as I thought it would. Okay. Uh, it, it was only a few hours of moving. All right. Uh, luckily, you would let you let me an expo- uh, a Ford Explorer. That's right. Let me just give a plug to the Ford people. Absolutely. The 95 <laughs> Ford Explorer. <laughs> it's starting to shake. Um, um, I did, I did uh, lose one of the one of my speakers out the back on Coinga Boulevard. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, it, it ended up being fine. But I was like, I was driving my friend, my friend Quinn, who had a car full of... Uh, for some reason, he has a car that's even shakier than your Explorer, and we, for some reason, we decided to put every box marked "fragile" into his car. So we're driving up Coenga, and I can barely see out the back because it's so it's so filled with boxes and and, yeah. and stuff. And I just see that Quinn has stopped, and given that he drives a car that's fifty years old or something, yeah. I, I thought, uh oh, Quinn's having car trouble. So I pulled over, and then they like he finally like caught up to me, and then I realized what had happened, which was that. We were unable to close the thing all the way because of my shells. Oh yeah, so yes. we had tied it with rope. Yeah, but uh, I guess through the with each bounce, the speaker had like fallen, like from on top of something down to the bottom, and then sort of like wedged its way out. Oh jeez! So I have a perfectly working speaker that now has just one side that's all scuffed up. Oh okay, all right. So so it's fine. Yeah, because I, I don't I don't want you to you know send me like a bill or something. <laughs> for, no, I'm uh, the one who was driving, you know, through Hollywood with a. Uh, that's the a back of the truck open. That's a problem right there. Um, but yeah, that's. I mean, the, the moving was was fine. I've just been unpacking forever. I love my new place. It still doesn't quite feel like my place. Yeah. Because I moved in with my girlfriend. Yeah. Who has lived there since I've known her yeah. for years before then. So I already know the place. Yeah. And since we tend to spend weekend nights together, anyway, you know. Yeah. It had. I think. Starting like tonight, tomorrow, th- throughout this work week, it'll really start to sink in. Yeah, that you're not going anywhere. That I don't have my old apartment <laughs> anymore, but in a good way. I'm just saying it doesn't yeah. feel it doesn't feel different yet, except for that it's now her apartment is filled with my shit. Now let me let me ask you this: uh, Are you going to be redecorating at all? How do you mean? Well, because the thing is, my view is that if you're moving in with her. Like, unless, unless like, you guys, uh, uh, together, of course, unless you agree to, like, I don't know, put up a poster or a picture or something, like, here that wasn't there before or something, then it'll always feel like you're just living in her apartment. Oh, yeah, totally. And my, my uh, I have a painting my friend Vinny did that we're going to put over the couch. Ah, yes. Um, I have a couple of movie posters, like, old original posters from uh, Judgment at Nuremberg and oh, nice. Last Tango in Paris that I was able to buy. Uh, when I worked at MGM, they were, like... yeah. Uh, because, frankly, because MGM is broke, they were literally like just selling off their stuff to their employees. <laughs> like, and so I got these awesome vintage posters. Uh, so I'm going to get those framed and put them up. Now, David, if there's something I know about you, it's that you love Last Tango in Paris. I do love that movie. It's 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 a good movie, but it's it's rough at times. Uh, yeah. Mike Schmidt really uh, <laughs> talked about it uh, quite eloquently on his own show. Yeah, that uh, it's just Brandon being crazy, which there's it, that's very entertaining. But this Judgment at Nuremberg poster is beautiful. It's the uh, you've probably seen this version of the of yeah. the artwork where it's uh, just black and white and sort of the faces of the leads in profile. Yeah, and they're just yeah, and and it's really just kind of the outline of their yeah, face. very shadowy. Yeah, it's awesome. That's a great poster. I love that. Yeah, so I'm gonna get that frame, put it up. Okay. 
Well, that's very exciting. I have a, I have a hand-painted fan that I bought in Chinatown. Oh, that's that, right. That yeah. you hang on the wall that has a, like, a painting of some fish on it. It's yellow. So you're a fan of fish, it sounds like. I'm a fan of things that are yellow. Oh, okay. You got the yellow uh, windscreen there. I'm going with the yellow windscreen, yeah. Um, yellow is my favorite color. Is that true? We've been doing this over three years. And I, you don't even know. You've known me 11 years. You don't even know what my favorite color is. No. My, I'm I trying to think if you ever saw when we were friends back when we were both in high school. My bedroom, the walls were painted yellow. No, I, d- I never saw that. Yeah, I was... I but was, I do I was, remember... That's about yellow. I still really like things that are yellow. No, I think your your favorite uh, your favorite shirt to wear was that Big Fun shirt, which I believe was yellow, correct? No, the Big Fun shirt was, was white. Was white? What's but the I yellow shirt the, that you wore? Uh, the North St. Louis Arts Council. Oh, that's the one. <laughs> which I wore until it fell apart. That okay. It was a, like 50 cents at a thrift store. It was the greatest shirt I ever bought. Yeah. Speaking of falling apart, I think maybe this podcast is falling apart. We're starting to reminisce about shirts you used to wear. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, now it should be noted, David. Uh-huh. Uh, now, where whereabouts are you living right now? <laughs> a hop, skip, and a jump from here. That's true. I N- didn't even realize how quickly I could get here. It's a jaunt. It's It's just like right there. Yeah, so I'm I'm here in North Hollywood. I'm in North Hollywood. I'm in the suburbs. Suburbs, <laughs> otherwise known as I'm sorry, what is it? Uh, the the Valley. The Valley. That's yeah. right. Now, uh, astute listeners may recall that uh, David hates the Valley. That's not. That's and not he never hates people true. who live here. That's he never thought true. that he would come here. That's true. And sooner, <laughs> but sooner or later, the Valley will get you. <laughs> that's what it does. And, no, I never uh, hated the Valley. I just like to to <laughs> to act. I liked to pretend that I lived in Los Angeles and you didn't. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because but technically I had a Los Angeles address. If you would if you would put in my street address and and it said Los Angeles, California and then my zip code, it would still get here. Right. So, okay. that's the one thing I don't understand about this place because if you wrote North Hollywood, it would get here there uh, it would get here as well. So, yeah. But now we are both North, Ho- North Hollywood residents. That's right. No hoers. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound appropriate somehow. But um now, David. Yeah, let's talk about movies or something. After, well, I got a movie to talk about. Okay. It is at the moment called Reservations, and it's the film directed by our good friend Jason Eakin, written yeah. and directed by him. At Eakin. On At Twitter. Eakin. Yes, Eakin, all capital letters, because why wouldn't you? E A K E N. Um, and uh, yeah, he wrote and directed it, and it stars uh, Josh Long, who's not been on the show but has written uh, some blogs for uh-huh. us. Uh, uh, Stevie Potter, who is a friend, a friend of me and Jason's, and uh, me. I am also in it. All right, and uh, and I. Uh, well, I thought there was a like a. I thought there was a female character in it. Yes. Yeah, oh, her name is it's Stevie. Is her? Yeah, her name what's is the, Stephanie. The, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and somebody called her Stephanie once. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> oh, right, Stevie. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really fun. We uh, we shot it last week, and then a couple of days this week. And uh, yeah, you guys shot last Friday night. Yeah, like not two nights ago, but a week before. Yeah, until like four in the morning. Yeah, and then Jason, I didn't know that. And then Jason picked me up at nine nine o'clock to go play golf. Yes, yes, insane. we all know that you went to play golf with <laughs> no, Jason. I'm just saying it's insane. That's a that's a guy who's dedicated to playing nine holes. Yeah, he sure is. It's uh, I. You know, we I'm sure he would have done it uh, this week as well. And we we were shooting even later than last week. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we shot again uh, on Saturday and we got it done. And uh, when when it's uh, when it's all edited, the film will probably be about 25 minutes. I'm not sure how we can have listeners uh, see it, but I'll see if we there's something we can we can figure yeah. out because um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I had a great deal of fun. And uh, 
listeners, you can you get to see me and uh, my big fat fucking face uh, <laughs> because I sh- had to shave my goatee for this thing. And uh, I, uh, you know, there's a reason that the word beard has has come to mean a lot of things aside from just facial hair, and all of it has to do with hiding. And because uh, <laughs> I shaved my beard, I'm like, oh yes, now I remember why I did this thing. And um, yeah, so uh, so I'm growing it back as soon as I can, which thankfully is. Uh, doesn't take nearly as long as it used to, oh, and good. that's almost uh, that's almost off-putting. It means I'm an adult now, and uh, so uh, kind of sad. I'm sorry. So what, what is Jason going to do another film? And is there a role for me in it? Is there a role for you? <laughs> uh, you can take the role I would that that would be for me because I'm not being in another one of his films ever again. <laughs> and um, that's that's a joke. But you know what? I'll reveal it here. This I could tell Jason specifically. But I think I'll reveal it on the podcast. Okay. So I played the role that he was that he wrote for himself. I was going to play a different role, uh-huh. but after a lot of finagling on my part, uh, I I uh, got the part and uh, and immediately started complaining. But but that's fine. And uh, and so <clears throat> and there were certain sections in the in the script that I just wasn't wasn't getting a handle on. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I mean, David, I've performed uh, Thornton Wilder. Uh, I've done a little bit of Shakespeare. I've done a little bit of Mamet. Harold Pinter? No, no Pinter. Um, so, I, I, you know, I've done... Uh, I was in Lion and Winter. I was in Harvey. I was in a lot of good Eugene plays. Eugene O'Neill. No Eugene, no Eugene O'Neill. I'm Ed sorry. O'Neill. Ed O'Neill. I've done a lot of Ed O'Neill, yes. <laughs> he was uh, understated. Very understated uh, playwright. Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> no, thank you. April O'Neill. <laughs> I just wore all yellow. <laughs> um, your favorite color. Yeah. And so... Uh, yes, I always liked April. Why? I think because she wore yellow. Just to make sure, we're talking about the same person, right? Or a non-person? You tell me. Okay. Fictional character, yeah. the reporter from <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, okay, I always just, liked that character. Okay, just making sure. You didn't like her? N- no, she she was always... I never really liked the damsel in distress, because that's all they ever did. They never helped. Huh. But that's not really who she was in the movie. Yeah, yeah not really. I mean, no, nah, she, she was... Usually, she was always getting in some kind of trouble. Okay. So, Maybe you're right. I haven't seen her in a while. But uh, I realize I just described her as like Br'er Rabbit or something like that. So now but, Jason's on the edge of his seat right now listening to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so there are certain sections of this script that I that I couldn't quite get. In spite of the fact that I had performed all this, somehow the words of Jason Aiken eluded me uh, <laughs> as an actor. And, um, and so, so uh, I was very frustrated, and I think Jason was frustrated with me. Um, and I, I kind of had to work against my own instincts on, on certain certain areas, and, and I think it turned out well. Uh, and then finally, like a week before we started shooting, because we had been rehearsing for a while, uh, I hit on an idea of like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play it like the any of the any of the questionable sections of the script that I'm having a hard time with. I'm going to do this, and I'll tell you what it is in a moment. Mm-hmm. So I deci- so I told Jason like, hey, I've got a new a new approach to the character. Here's w- and and I won't tell you what it is, but I'm gonna try it, and you just let me know if you like it. He goes, okay. So we uh, <laughs> so we after the first day of shooting, I do that, and um, and afterwards Jason's like, hey, I don't know what this new thing is, but it's working. It's mm-hmm. really working well. I'm like, okay, well I'll tell you after the shoot. Uh, so I did it again, and uh, and it all worked out very well. Uh, the secret was to play Jason Eakin. 
Um, that was my. Uh, that was my. That sounds insulting, but it's just I. I, I kind of realized like, well, if he wrote this for himself, uh-huh. he probably. I mean, some of this is in his own cadence, and actually, <coughs> in the questionable sections, I. Uh, I realized that. Well, you know what? If I try this with his kind of with his cadence. And all of a sudden, it was working for me too, <laughs> and it all just fell into place. And um, and and that's the thing is, I don't think that's like egotistical on his part. But like when you write something that was very clearly for yourself, uh-huh. you know, uh, like uh, Quentin Tarantino was originally supposed to play Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs, and then he gave it over to uh, to Steve Buscemi. But you can tell that like, oh man, that's a section that he would have loved to say, you know. <laughs> um, and so. So there, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, I, I do find it find it interesting. It's like, man, that's working. So of course it is. Tyler's advice to, to actors is to get to know the screenwriter yeah. and become him. Yeah, if only if the screenwriter, yes, is, is also the director. Um, because okay. the screenwriter doesn't have a lot of say in uh, the directing uh, process usually. But, uh, but it, was, uh, it was fun to be a, a part of it, and, and it wound up uh, really also just gorgeous looking, the, the DP that we had. Uh, he actually had like a steady cam, and he had a car mount where you basically suction cup the camera yeah, to yeah. the front of the car, and it was great. It looked really great, um, except that it was a, kind of at a bad angle again. My face looked just big and fat and terrible, and I, I really hated it, but you know what? All in the line of duty. All right, so now Jason's no longer on the edge of his seat. You know who is on the edge of their seat? Who's that? Our, our, our raffle winners. Oh, shoot. That's right. Hang on. <laughs> I don't have that pulled up right well, now. Let me talk about it. Okay, for those who don't know, you missed out on it. We'll do another one <laughs> In sometime like a year, by the maybe. end of the year. Yeah. Uh, let's say six months. To, to six years. months? How long was it between our, the, our last one and this one? About 11 months. Really? Yeah, we did it in, in May last year. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So maybe next year. Um, we did a, a a drive where if you if you, if you you donated during the month of April... Uh, your name got entered. There was a, there's a whole other raft of ways your name could get entered. There was yeah. one other way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 we and we were, were giving out some prize packages to to people who donated. Their their names were drawn at random. That's right. By the randomizer. By the randomizer. That's correct. Okay. So uh, here we go. We'll All s- right. Let's start with package number one. This is the DVD package. The DVD package, which contained, of course, uh, it contains an autographed. Uh, DVD copy of uh, Greg Helvey's Kavi. Uh-huh. Uh, it in, it uh, includes uh, autographed by Nathan Basil, uh, Behind the Mask. Uh-huh. Autographed by d- actor Doug Jones, uh, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Uh-huh. And the first season of Pinky and the Brain, yes, autographed by Maurice LaMarche. I was able that to one's going to be a collector's item. Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I was able to make that happen. So... Um, so that so the, has happened. He has signed it. Or he has signed it. Have, oh, okay. He has signed it. I met him at a bank, and uh, <laughs> he Very said, "Shady." Yeah, it it was a little shady. Yes, uh-huh. um, and uh, so yeah, the winner of the DVD package is our good friend Jose Zaragoza. All There's right, probably a better way to pronounce that, but I don't know it. You see that? Yeah, I, I, that's Zaragoza. That's sounds the best good. I could do. All right, so Jose, y- you're going to be getting some uh, DVDs. Uh, probably like a month or so. Um, uh, winner package of, number two, number, the CD package. That's right. Now this is uh, autographed by Kyle Kinane, his album "Death of the Party." That's right. You got a copy of "Don't Stop or We'll Die" dies EP. Yeah. Um, what else do we have in there? We've got uh, Graham Elwood's CD. Uh, the comedian's got a boo boo. Right. Uh, Jackie Cation's CD autographed. Uh, it is never going to be bred. Uh, 
Uh, and then another. Oh, and then uh, Sean Cohen's uh, "I Am a Human Man." Not autographed. Not autographed, unfortunately. He's not in the country. He's not. I couldn't couldn't make that happen. <laughs> uh, but the the winner of that is uh, Ben C. Congratulations, C. Benjamin. Benjamin C. Yes. Uh, and then lastly, okay. Now talk about what this package is. This, this is the big one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, maybe people would actually buy our merch if you didn't disparage it all the time. All right. Uh, so this is the BP merch package. Now, David, that stands for merchandise. We we, we, this. we sell things from time to time. <laughs> um, uh, basically, uh, there's like T-shirts. There's coffee mugs. There's an adorable teddy bear. If you want to put something on your on your dog, which I don't recommend, that's in there mostly as a joke. But seriously, don't buy clothes for your pets. Um, <laughs> but if you wanted to, then you can do that. You you could dress up your children <laughs> with sure. uh, BP merchandise, which you is get, a, hilarious get, to me. You can get a uh, a messenger bag in bright yellow, bright my yellow favorite color. There you go. You could get a mouse pad. Yeah. You could get a desk clock. I think. Yes, I uh, I forget if it's a desk clock. I think it's just a wall clock. Oh, a wall clock. Okay. <laughs> you know. What time is it? Time to listen to Battleship Pretension. <laughs> um, so, and now, how how are we going to decide who what what these people are getting? Uh, basically, uh, what we did last year was uh, a thir- uh, like a thirty or forty. Do- uh, I think forty dollars, okay. a forty dollar limit, and they can get whatever they want. All right. So, uh, and so the winner of the BP merch package is. Hang on now. Okay. Watch out. You ready? Yeah. David. Uh huh. You ready? Yes. Okay. It's Carrie Williamson. Carrie. Carrie. Way to go. All right. Hey, so, Carrie, check out the uh, Let's Get Into It, Shall We t-shirt, that's which right. is now available over at the at the store, which is on Cafe Press. Yeah. Cafe Press slash uh, dot com slash uh, BP store. Or, of course, you can just click on the link. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, on the Assuming on that our website is not blocked at your workplace as it is at mine. Which I don't understand. I don't understand, uh, but a lot of people have like emailed. I took the porn off the website months ago. <laughs> I thought it would get us some traffic. Got us a lot, actually. Um, but they left very soon after. Um, so, yeah, congratulations Wait, to everybody. About, about five, six minutes after. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, actually, they stayed tuned for the in-depth movie discussions <laughs> and listening us talk about shirts and prize packages. Good Lord. Um so yeah, uh, congratulations to everybody that won the raffle, and uh, a special thank you to everybody who uh, donated. Um, you know, uh, I, I assume that people did not do it because of the raffle. Um, a sure, lot of people emailed and said, "Like, hey, you know what?" Uh, they didn't say like, "Don't enter me," but they said, "I'd be doing this anyway. I'm excited that I can uh-huh. I can help you guys out." And so, um, so well, we it really, really do, does help. It it really does, especially when you have a you know when you've got a lot of people giving you know just what you know what they can. Uh, it, it really amounts to a lot of things, and there's things that we can do now. You know, we have needed to get a new soundboard for a while, and so mm-hmm. we're able to do that. I need new business cards. David needs new business cards. Uh, we're going to be doing another live show, and that requires uh, equipment and beer um, <laughs> because we like our audience to be drunk. Wait, now you say we're doing another live show? Oh yeah, David, I thought I told you about this. Yeah, it's uh, uh, you did. Let me let me see if let me see if I can remember. Okay, All I, right. wa- I want to say June fifth. Yeah. Saturday, June fifth, eight okay. p.m. Yeah, at the at the at the back gallery at Meltdown Comics on Sunset yeah. Boulevard. Yeah, in in beautiful West Hollywood. Yeah, or is that Hollywood? I don't know. I don't recall. It's it's right there, sort of on the uh, in that gray zone between Hollywood and West Hollywood. Right. But um, uh, now it's gonna be five dollars to get in. Five bucks to get in. Free beer. If Free you're beer. Twenty one and over. Yeah. Uh, who are our guests gonna be? Okay. 
Now, as we've learned, uh, <laughs> this is always subject to change. Yeah, um, when you're not paying people who are funny for a living, if they get a chance to be paid to be funny, yeah, that's what they're gonna do. That's what they're gonna do. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> or if their parents come in from out of town to visit yeah. at the last minute, or if they, or if surgery doesn't go as planned, <laughs> yeah. or if they don't check their calendar on a regular basis, there's a lot of issues going on. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, uh, so this is of course subject to change, but as of right now, we do have confirmations from what it's interesting, David, we put this lineup out there with no expectation of this actually working out. We assumed we would get maybe two of these people. And we'd have to find alternates. But actually, okay. everybody came through. Okay, here's what we got. Okay. Ed Salazar is involved again. Of course. Uh, so that's, yeah. Foregone we, conclusion. We, we we would not do the show without Ed. Yeah. We, we, we might. But we prefer Ed wouldn't do the show to. without us. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we prefer not to do the show without Ed. Yeah. And Ed will be there. Yeah. Uh, now some past friends of the show. Some yeah. guests. Yeah. Uh, off his very, fresh off his very successful live show at Meltdown Comics. That's right. Uh, Paul Goble, the king of TV. Paul Goble will, will be, be there, there performing. Um, speaking of successful podcasters, that's right. Uh, like like a Paul Goble, yeah. Uh, and 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 also also a guest at the Paul Goble live show, yeah. The forty year old boy, Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt will be there performing. Will be there, yeah. Uh, star of stage and screen. That's right. From last year's mega hit film, I Love You, Beth Cooper. Absolutely. And from the little scene, uh, Art House. Uh, treasure in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, Paul Rust. Paul Rust will be there. And for those people, I mean, uh, people might have they've heard, heard heard him on our show. Mm-hmm. He knows a lot about movies. It was a great episode. We can't wait to have him back uh, yeah. for a regular episode. Uh, so he, you know, he's he obviously knows a lot about movies. He's very smart. You've seen him in Inglorious Bastards and and maybe in I Love You, Beth Cooper. Yeah, you know he's a good actor. For those who don't know. Paul Rust is also one of the funniest guys going. He's very funny. Yes, he's he, he's hilarious. Yeah, and, and so that will be a real treat. And then headlining the show, headlining the show, closing it out. Yeah, they ha- they, ha- they haven't been on Battleship Potential for quite some time. Right, but they, but are, they are a fan favorite. Yes, hilarious comedians, twins, yeah. sports aficionados, yeah. St. Louisans. The Sklar brothers. Yes, Randy and Jason Sklar will be there, and so, uh, so yeah, it's a good lineup, everybody. Yeah, and it's so we be great. we really encourage you those who can make it, uh, please come on out. Uh, again, that's June fifth, eight p.m. Meltdown Comics on Sunset. Uh, we will uh, be sending out things on Facebook. Uh, we've got somebody putting together a, a nice promotional poster, and so we'll be uh, we we will be promoting this uh, more heavily in the next in the next few weeks. Very uh, heavily. Very very. You're, you're going to get sick of hearing about it. You will absolutely. I'm sure you're sick of it now. And uh, so, but seriously, uh, it's going to be a great time. And like I said, free beer. Yeah. It's a Saturday night. Yeah. Five bucks and all, all the beer you could drink. Uh, tip your bartender. Uh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Oh my gosh, David! We are not even cl- we're not even close to the topic. I got so many other things to talk about. That's, uh, not, that's, that's not, not true. We're not. <laughs> so we're gonna after, get into it, shall we? Shall we get into it? After twenty three minutes, let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. Uh, okay, like uh, like I said, I've been moving all weekend, <laughs> very busy. So we decided to do something that I think this was kind of like a back burner topic for a while. It's like anytime it's like that we like. We're busy. We don't have time to do a lot of research or, or yeah. write out some thoughts. We both know enough about film noir that we yeah. can do an episode on it. Yeah, you call it a back burner topic. I call it a back pocket topic. Okay, yeah, because that makes sense. here's the thing. Okay, 
everybody, we know that Western is, Western is a genre. We know it. Uh, we're saving it. We know that war, fil- war films are a genre. We know that French New Wave, that was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know all this stuff. But here's the thing. If we always have those in our back pocket, that means we're never out of topics. All right? Yeah. And, and occasionally so, there'll be a week like this one. Yeah. Where we just didn't have, uh, you know, we were busy. I was doing the film. Yeah. David was moving. We had a lot of stuff to do. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, what, uh, what's this? Back pocket topic. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah. And because it's, you know, it's kind of broad, you know, discussing film yeah. noir, discussing these other genres. And keeping it in the back pocket doesn't mean we think any less of it. Like, Not at all. Is, uh, this is one of the defining movements in American American cinema. Yeah, maybe even the defining movement. The, the you know what, if film noir is the is the is the 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 strain of American cinema that made the uh, intellectual film goers over at Cahiers du Cinema no. in, in France like take notice of, yeah. of American cinema and think of it. Uh, it. It's I mean it's it's such. Film noir, not just for America, but just for the world of cinema, is so uh, was such a huge milestone in film making the trans transmission tra- transition yeah. from uh, from entertainment to an art form, or to, yeah. to, for it to be seen that way. It was always yeah. an art form, yeah. But as far as its acceptance as an art form, film noir is one of just uh, it's an integral part of that. Yeah, it really it announced it really announced like. The United States, because up until then, with the exception of like, you know, a D.W. Griffith or something mm-hmm. like that, with those exceptions, almost any major movement in film came from Europe, yeah. you know, whether it be Russia or Germany or, you know, Italy or whatever. Um, it was always that. But then all of a sudden, uh, after World War Two, American filmmakers now, admittedly, a lot of them were European, uh-huh. but they started, uh, and American audiences just started to flock to these films. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. You, you talk about the Europeans. Let's talk about the Cahir du Cinema and, okay. and those people. Um, these I think, people like like Eric Romare and Jean-Luc Godard and mm-hmm. Francois Truffaut, yeah. who like, all started as critics before they mm-hmm. made films. <laughs> Someday, David, you and me. <laughs> I'm not really interested. Yeah. <laughs> I just did this thing. It took three days, and I'm exhausted. I yeah. don't have the energy. Um, but what happened? I mean, the the studio system was in place for for so long, and it's still in place today. And we, mm-hmm. it, it it took an outside point of view to even realize that something was happening. Yeah. I think because yeah. uh, as far as the studios were concerned, they were just they they still you know they had hired writers on the set. You know, you had. Um, uh, William Faulkner co-writing, mm-hmm. the, uh, adapting The Big Sleep, it, you know, you hire these writers, they stay, they, they live pretty much on the lot, yeah. you know, like you see, see in Barton Fink, they're, they're just, it's just a factory, you know, yeah. and then you've got your, your costume department, your, you get your directors, you get your, you know, all these yeah. little things are just, they're just parts of the, of, of the assembly line almost, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, I think that's so much the way the studios were thinking about it. They didn't even realize that this thing was happening organically out of that. Yeah. Until uh, a lot of these these French critics uh, noticed that there was this sort of this strain of very dark themed, you know, uh, yeah. this is a lot of a lot of despair, a lot of existentialism. Yeah, deeply happen- cynical. Yeah. Yeah. All, all happening, you know, right after. After World War Two, yeah, uh, and and really starting during World War Two, I mean, 
I mean, what year is Maltese Falcon? That's 41. It's 41. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's a film called Detour, which is great, and that came out in, like, 1940. When did Scarlet Street come out? Uh, Scarlet Street is 44, I think. Oh, really? Okay. Maybe, maybe later. I don't know why I thought that was... Uh was earlier than that, but oh well. I could maybe you know I could be wrong, but yeah, Scarlet Street is another one. That's a, also a great movie if you haven't seen it. And there's there's a there's now a good version of the DVD. Mm, <laughs> good, good. The one I have, I was just one because it was sort of in the public public domain, and I yeah. have a DVD that's clearly just from an old VHS copy. Yeah, thing. like my uh, my copy. Of, I once had a DVD copy of the Third Man. Uh, third, by the way, wasn't spelled out. It was the number three, and then R D. And uh, and you go and. Uh, they did, conveniently enough, divide it into chapters for you. Uh, four. Four chapters. Four chapters. Because so, there's really only four important parts of the film, right? <laughs> you can, you can e- easily divide that film into four, you know, four sections. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting because World War II was... When, think, when, when people think of it now, you look, at, you look at something like Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, uh, The Pacific is a, is a new you know, uh-huh. miniseries, um, uh, the Greatest Generation, you know, that that book. Uh, people, when they think back on it, they think of it as, like, the last good war. Uh-huh. You know, the Korean War, probably not necessary. Vietnam, certainly not necessary. You know, And also a loss. And also, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, all the wars now, I mean... The, the, and and, the, and it's, it's the first... It's, to this day, World War II is still the last, like, real war America's right. had. Like, we, right. as far as actually... Declaring war, yeah, you know, yeah, the war was never declared in Korea. Yeah, uh, it's it's not there was like a, there was like an act of Congress in nineteen eighty eight or eighty nine, mm-hmm. uh, where now it's okay. It's officially referred to as the Korean War. Oh, okay, but it never was. It was a, like a police action, yeah, or, or something. Uh, yeah, and I mean the face of war now is just so different than what it used to be, and and I think a lot of that changed. In World War II, but anyway, the point is that, like, when people think back on it, they think of it as, like, the, especially Americans, they think of it as, like, noble, very noble. Uh-huh. It got us out of the Great Depression. And then afterwards, it was the, the you know, the booming 50s. And we, and we vanquished evil. We va- exactly, exactly. You know? and, and now look how happy we are. We've gotten through the Depression. We've gotten through this terrible war. We've vanquished evil, and now it's time to it's time to prosper. You know, and there is, you know, people think of, of of that, and and at the time that that was kind of the 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 tone, but these films somehow still got made. These films that that questioned what uh, it, it's interesting but because they got made because they didn't do it. Head on, except for maybe like best years of our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very few films. These films aren't addressing the war head right. on. They're they're way. addressing they're addressing America, and I think yeah. that's what's fascinating about. So, uh, f- full disclosure, I guess, uh, David, you took a film noir mm-hmm. uh, critical studies class. I took a film noir screenwriting class, uh-huh. uh, and so I, I feel like we're going to wind up approaching it kind of from from different angles. Um, and from a from a structural standpoint, it's fascinating because. It's questioning the very nature of America, like the underside of of what you know all the, all the the things about like the American dream, like oh well we're all, you know the war has happened now it's time for us to prosper. Well, what does prosperity look like? How far are you willing to go in order to prosper? Um, and also, uh, sorry, would you like me to continue talking while you get yourself a nice yawn there? No, I didn't, didn't know that. It came out of nowhere. Okay, um, like the the. The characters in these films who are sort of 
cynical or disillusioned. Disillusionment is probably a, is a yeah, huge yeah. part of it. Um, aren't necessarily people who were in the war or anything. It's just right. that after the war, they were being uh, America as a whole was being sold this idea that like everything is great in America now. We yeah. won. We're happy. We're prosperous. Everything's better now. Yeah. And for some people, that wasn't true. And yet they're right. being told that every day. And that's where this sense of disillusionment yeah. comes from. That's one of the places it comes from. And it's and it also. I mean, you mentioned the best years of our lives, which is not a which is not a, a film noir, but. Uh, I have so I have such tremendous respect for that film now uh because it it's a film that was made like 2 years like a year 46. or two 46 yeah. a year after the war was over. I mean just the balls that it took to actually say, yeah, this wasn't we did win and it was a good win, you know, because we won over the Nazis and we're just now really starting to come to grips with the terrible things that were done uh-huh. by then by by the Nazis. So it's like, okay, so we're 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 in that we're in that place now. But let's all let's just acknowledge that this was not easy. This was not an easy war. Yeah. Uh, you know, like even when the even when the allies were winning, they still saw all kinds of atrocities going on, you mm-hmm. know, when they liberated the camps and stuff. And so so it's just you know, it's interesting. Uh you and I once talked uh on an episode that is uh, no longer available. We talked about um 25th hour in reference to September 11th, uh-huh. and how it is addressed head-on at times, but more in, more specifically, the tragedy and the, as you say, the kind of the existential uh, awareness uh-huh. in New York at the time, because the film was made in 2002, it's just, the film is just saturated with it, and it's there even when they're not talking about it. And I feel like the, as you say, the disillusionment the, the, that comes with war. September Eleventh is barely talked about at all in the Twenty Fifth Hour. There's the part where they're looking down on Ground Zero, right? Which is pretty direct. But aside yeah. from that, yeah, and then, yeah. I mean, like he doesn't really in his his like rant into the mirror about all the minorities. Yeah. Uh, that's clearly what it's inspired. Like, that, yeah. That's I mean, he mentions it. Osama bin Laden, but he's right. just one of ma- of, yeah. of all the others. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point. But yeah, but at the same time, it's just the 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 frustration, the sadness, the sudden awareness that even that we can't just make things, ha- we can't just will thing will ourselves to be happy. Um, that just that just got in the roots of these films, even when it's not addressing America, even when there's no question saying like, uh, you know, a character saying like, ah, you know. I'm starting to wonder if this America thing's such a good idea. You know, it doesn't do that. Uh-huh. These are characters who don't question things. They just go. That's all they do. They, if anything, there's a lack of introspection. Yeah. They just act. And we are supposed to learn something from their actions, even if they don't. Yeah. Um, aside from maybe, mm, maybe I shouldn't have done that, uh, but only because they've been faced with the consequences. Um, and what, what does fascinate me, though, is these films, not only were they, did they kind of announce... Uh, America as as a strong uh, you know force in the artistry of of film, um, but also the films are they're very entertaining and they were viewed as such at the time and now. But like yeah. they're just they were fun to watch, even in the midst of being incredibly depressing and cynical. Yeah, but yeah, but there's a there's a certain coolness to them. Yeah, uh, and you know they have guns and stuff in them. And they always have pretty dames. You remember the classic film noir, Guns and Stuff. Um, Guns and dames. Guns and dames. Dames and guns. Um, Yeah, and it's just, uh, 
it's it's just such a fascinating subgenre. I mean, if you know, if you go back and look at like my ten favorite movies of all time, uh-huh. a lot of them, some of them are, are neo noir, which David, Dave, and I were discussing. We will perhaps talk about next week. Yeah, because once you start un- unpacking the back pocket, all you'll find all kinds of treasures, <laughs> and so um, so a lot of them are, are like neo noir, but they're just. It just somehow resonated with with me a great deal, and it just it resonates with a lot of people. Just these these ideas of like I, I don't yes we can we can get rich, but what about the people who are unable to get rich, or the people who are willing to do whatever they can to get rich, or or get the girl and get and be you know and be rich all at the same time, and not even not even richness, just doing okay sometimes is. Well, let's is talk the about thing. that. Let's uh, let's actually actually talk about some films now. Okay. Um, there's a couple of films that leap directly to mind out of, out of the past yep. and, and the killers, which I never, I never saw actually. Okay. You should see it. It's awesome. But they both kind of start with characters who aren't necessarily interested in prosperity. They're just trying to live their lives Yeah, and they have to do it sort of in secret. Yeah. Uh, they, they had to sort of run away, you know, because of something they did, but, yeah. uh, really just because the rest of the world the, the world they came from is evil enough to get them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- this is where the cynicism en- enters in. Oh, yeah. Uh, they just want to have simple American lives. Just They're just men who want to have a roof over their head and work hard and earn their keep. Maybe go fishing from time to time. Sure. Uh, and, um, of course, they're unable to do that because that uh, the, the message, I guess, is that that version of of the american paradigm is disappearing yeah uh now there's this world that's richer more luxurious more opulent but also a lot uh colder and meaner and and more more calculating Mm -hmm. less less warm well and also that that idea of somebody running from their past a past that admittedly where they they admittedly didn't did a lot of bad things i'm talking about out of the past right now where Robert Mitchum plays a guy who used to be uh, an inf- an enforcer, I guess, is what you would what you would call that. Was he he worked for a gangster? He wasn't right. like you know very high level yeah, himself. Um, uh, but yeah, I think he was just a detective who got work from this gangster on a fairly regular basis. But I don't know if he was officially like an employee of theirs. But anyway, but he wound up having to do some bad things, and he runs away from that, changes his name. Gets work, you know, gets work at a gas station. I think mm-hmm. he actually winds up owning the the gas station and, mm-hmm. and repair place and all that. Um, and he's and he's living what is he's married. He's uh, you know, dating this nice woman and and he's just and he's he, he's just getting as you say he's just getting by. Um, and but what I like about these, um, even though they they kind of fly in the face of some of my theological beliefs, but one of the major themes is the idea that. Uh, there's no such thing as redemption, and and these characters are beyond redemption. Like it doesn't matter what how good a life you're living right now. Yeah, you did something in the past, and you can never ever run away from it. Yeah, that's and that's where this cynicism. Uh, let's. There's a whole thing. This is during that we we talked about the Hayes Code a while ago. It was one of one of our favorite episodes. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how the listeners feel about it, but uh, they <laughs> liked it. We got some good feedback. One of our on favorite that. episodes that we've ever done. Um, and a lot of what happened was sort of sneaking things under the nose of the Hayes Code or of yeah. the, even of the studios. Yeah. And I think a film like Out of the Past seems like, on, in a very facile way, it's a it's like a moralistic 
tale. It's like Mm -hmm. you can't do a bad thing and run away from it. But really what it's saying is, like you said, there's no such thing as redemption. And there are things at this point, not to keep going back to the war, but it is one of the biggest influences on this genre. Yeah. There's, you know, in the domestic front, there's the internment camps with the Japanese. And then, of course, there's the fucking atomic bombs. Two of them. Yes, two of, yeah, them. Two of them, yes. Yeah, I mean, and uh, and the firebombing of Dresden and all, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and even just the awareness of the concentration camps, even though yeah. they didn't do it, it's, you know, we, we didn't... It happened on our watch, kind of. And also, it's... It's a, it's a sort of innocence lost. I mean, America is yeah. still a very young country. Yeah. Uh, in general, and especially you know, sixty years ago, it was even more so. Uh, and that's, and so doing these awful things, uh, and seeing the just the worst of humanity. Yeah. Uh, is is scarred us? Mm. Has has scarred us? And there's that. That's what that's what I think. Out of the past is really about, and that's why it's, in my opinion, one of the best examples of the noir genre is that it really is about, like you said, there's just there, there's no going back. You can't. Yeah. We're not going to be what we once were. Yeah, and it's no matter no matter how hard you try to ignore those things, act like they didn't happen, no matter how far you run, you they will always catch up with you. I don't. I don't. Even if be, only in your own mind. I don't want to imply when I say there's no going back to no what we once were. It's not like what we once were before the 1930s and 40s was great yeah it's just that we kind of were blind to it yeah you know we america the majority of america felt good about itself yeah uh you know before the before the depression yeah it's uh and and it's odd that you bring up the depression because i think that also informed the the war certainly but i think the depression also informed uh uh film noir a great deal because you had people who weren't who didn't have any money and probably were willing to do if even if they didn't do it were willing to do all kinds of things just to not to be rich and famous not even to be incredibly prosperous Uh but just to get to get back to like the 20s and get back to like uh, a time when they had a job and knew where their next meal was coming from yeah um and so and i think I think to a lot of people, there's a certain nobility in that. And, yeah. But what what we see in the noir films, uh, to change the subject from from these films where people are trying to get away, mm-hmm. there are the films where people are trying to do whatever they can to get to get rich, right? And to, and to keep up. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the Postman Always Rings Twice. Yeah. Um, another great one, uh, based and, on a novel by James M. Cain. Right, which he, he which he wrote in the 30s. Yeah. You know, and I, that and double Inde- he also wrote Double Indemnity, uh, and. Uh, so it's interesting that a lot of these films that came out after the war were based on books that came out before the war. Yeah. Because yeah. just it, it became it created a perfect storm of cynicism. Um, yeah, well that's that's always the case to get off topic for for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh major studio movies mm-hmm. uh are always 10 years or so behind the actual the behind the actual curve because yeah. the thing is the majority of Americans are. If you like, what we saw over the past ten years, uh, or maybe even just over the past few years in Pacific, but like with Batman Begins and stuff like this, this sort of like deconstruction of the superhero myths. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been happening in, the, in comic books since the 1980s. Oh yeah, uh, you know, but it's it's a niche thing then because it's only certain people care about it. It's when when things hit the hit the studio movies. That's when they're hitting the American public. Yeah, yeah. 
So that that's that's what I had to say about that. Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the the work of of uh, James M. Cain is uh, uh, now. I believe, as far as the books go, you've read Double Indemnity. No, and I re- okay, I thought you had. I haven't read any James M. Cain. Okay, I read Postman Always Rings twice, and um, and I've seen both films, um, and uh, it these are you know because. There's there's the the story of like the the seen it all detective you know drawn into this case that's kind of the the cliche and uh-huh. and for good reason there's plenty of that but um but there's also just kind of the everyman who is living a respectable a uh, perfectly respectable life uh-huh. um and in and in the case of the character from Postman Always Rings Twice uh, I think the character is just kind of a you know it takes place in the 30s and so he doesn't have a job I think he's just a drifter uh-huh. um. And but again, there's there's a nobility in that. There's a respectability in that. And just I got to do what you know. I, I'm I'm working. I'm just I'm getting by. You know, yeah. just barely. Um, and so, but you have these characters who suddenly are faced with what seems like something is too good to be true. You get a lot of money and a woman uh, in one fell swoop. And as David has uh, has said in the past. Always be care- be wary of those fell swoops, especially when it's just one. Uh, yeah. Look for a lot of small fell swoops. Um, but uh, I'm essentially laughing at myself right now. Absolutely, as you should. It was one of your one of your better moments. Um, and of course, David and I we were going to start a band called the Fell Swoops. Um, but the uh, yeah, and so it, it's interesting because we look at these characters and we we sometimes in the in the case of of uh, both of these uh, films slash books, uh, the the characters are drawn in to basically murder someone, and basically if they just murder this person, uh-huh. then that then that is their gateway to love and riches, everything that uh, that America has to offer. You know, a nice a nice family for the rest of your life, and a lot of money, and you're you're gonna you know you're not gonna have to work again, or maybe you can use this money and start your own business and build the business. Oh, it's gonna be great. So that's. That's the idea, and you watch these these films, and uh, and it's interesting because Postman Always Rings Twice, the the uh, the novel, is even more seedy and sleazy. Uh-huh. Uh, they couldn't put that kind of, not even so much in the characters' actions or the way they talk, but just in the descriptions. Like you really feel like, ugh, that guy looks. I can just imagine him in my in my head, just his greasy hair and stuff. <laughs> um, but the. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, ah, shoot! Now I lost my. I got stuck with. I got my head stuck <laughs> on greasy hair, and then I got. Then I wound up uh, with uh, Celebrity Jeopardy. But um, oh yeah, so we wa- we look at these these characters who just seem very seedy, very very sordid. With uh, they they lack all morals, uh, and we kind of judge them in these ones specifically because they're they're like us. Uh-huh. You know, they're just living a nice upstanding life. Uh, just as we are, but then they go and do this thing, and you kind of feel a certain degree of indignation towards them, and be like, Ugh, "How terrible!" You do also kind of want them to get away with it, by the way. Yeah. Um, but you do feel that sense of like, and particularly oh. in Postman Always Rings Twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you you kind of want them to get away with it, but there's still that idea of just like, like, oh, that's terrible what they're doing. Uh, but there's that that idea, uh, kind of planted in your head of. Well, I've just never been in this situation. <clears throat> Maybe I would do this if if given the chance. You know, if I was in his situation, in the case of Double Indemnity, it's it's a character who just seems kind of bored with his life. Um and in the ca- and 
postman always rings twice. It's again, it's it's a guy who's who doesn't have uh, a great deal of money and not much of a future. And so, if I was in that situation, yeah, I might jump at the chance to 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 do this. And so, uh, so there is that real. Whenever it's like an everyman, uh, it always there's always uh, this kind of this this interesting mix as far as uh, audience reaction, which is to condemn them and judge them, but also to realize, ah, shoot, it's a lot easier to imagine me in this guy's situation than, you know, Sam Spade, or, uh, I don't remember the name of the character in Out of the Past, but, like, it's all a lot, because they have experience with the underworld, uh-huh. whereas these guys, they're just regular guys, and the underworld comes to them. Right. Not necessarily the underworld, like, gangs or anything, or, you know, gangsters or anything like that, but just the, the, the criminal, yeah, the underbelly, yes, yes. Um, and I guess... Uh, given this, we should probably discuss uh, the femme fatale. That's which, uh, exactly what I was going to get into. Yeah, because um, you, you mentioned that a big part of the temptation for these people is a woman. You yeah, know, be it Barbara Stanwyck or who is it in Postman Rings Twice? I think it's Lana Turner. Lana Turner. Yeah, that sounds right. Probably. Um, and uh, I immediately, uh, when you talk about the femme fatale, I immediately think of Gun Crazy. Oh, uh, it's great. Which is one of the. It's even though it was remade. Um, in the 90s. Yeah, uh, with which, Drew Barrymore, I think. Yeah, which I never saw. It still seems like it's one of the movies that has kind of slipped through the cracks when people talk about noir. Mm. People don't talk about Gun Crazy uh, right off the bat. And it, it's one of my favorites. It's an awesome, awesome movie. I but, think I think the reason that it doesn't get talked about... It, don't get me wrong. I, I love it. But there's there are things in there, like the character's obsession with, uh, with guns, mm-hmm. where it's so kind of over-dramatized and, and just... You're like this. This is kind of silly, um, yeah. But of course, that in itself could be representative of you know America's uh, love affair with guns. Thank you very much, Michael Moore. Right. But um, but anyway, there you go. Um, really, that's, we're not talking about guns right now. We're talking about the femme fatale. Right. We'll get which, to guns uh, when we talk about Bonnie and Clyde, which will not be this episode. Right. <laughs> but when we, um, in in almost any one of these movies, you know, you talk about Lana Turner, Barbara Stanwyck, Ava Gardner. There's always going to be some beautiful woman. What's her name in Maltese Falcon? The, the character? Or the... Oh, Mary Astor. Mary Astor. Okay. And the character's name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one, of greatest, one of the greatest names in movie history. Did right? I ever tell you that when I was working at Blockbuster, a young woman, probably in her, about 25, came in and she... Uh, I scanned her Blockbuster card and it popped up and, I'm like, and it was Bridget O'Shaughnessy. I'm like, your name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy? And she goes, ah... Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> My parents were a big fan of the Maltese Falcon. I'm like, they named you after what is ostensibly the villain, you know. <laughs> and uh, she goes, yeah, I know, but they like the... And I was like, wow, that's it's that's fascinating. Name. They uh, gifted someone with that name. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> a lot of times, it's in, in addition to, and almost every time, in addition to the prospect of wealth, there's, there's a woman. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that I uh, took a class on film noir. Yeah. Another class I took in in college in film school was on war propaganda. Oh, yes. And it during World War 2 there was uh is is very subtle. I mean, what's not subtle is the way the studios were in cahoots with the government during World War 2. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine it's still happening, especially with Disney. Uh but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why Disney especially just because they seem like the most monolithic. But um <laughs> I uh, no, I'm sure there there's still uh deals being made some seedy and some innocent but mm-hmm. uh there there were clear like 
sort of themes that the government wanted, like, put these in your movies. It's good, you know, for the good of the nation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the very subtle things that I learned about in, in film film school in this class was this idea that they were kind of gently encouraging single young women to go ahead and sleep with men if they were going to go off to war. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be good for their morale. It's kind of your duty. You're not going off to fight. They're 18 or 19, probably virgins. Uh, yeah. You know, not necessarily, but that was sort of the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, they very well could get could 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 get killed over there mm. go ahead and, and sleep with them and now i think uh that's part of this what what happened after there's all of a sudden there's this fear it's like like now these young women are sexualized in a what hath we wrought yeah in 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 a way that that they that the powers that be would view as as immoral mm. uh and that's i think where the fear comes from and why mm. why uh a sexually forward woman is uh, just a uh, just a red light of da- for danger in all these movies. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, there's in that, and so you're basically. That's. I mean, again, that's an oversimplification. There's okay. I, I don't want to make it sound like every single thing theme in the film in noir films can be brought can can has its roots in World War Two, mm-hmm. but uh, it was probably it was it was the catalyst mm-hmm. for these films. So, and I think ahead. there's also just. You know, just from a you know a structural standpoint, it's never because it's never just the woman. It's never mm-hmm. her just saying, "Hey, would you if you kill my husband, we can be together." It's like, yeah, all right, eh, I don't know. <laughs> it's always her with the money, right? But at the same time, if a man showed up and said, "Hey, I've got a way to make a lot of money. Why don't you uh, kill this person over here?" Then it's just like, eh, I don't know. I don't trust that guy because. Uh, I kill this person and we get the money. Uh, this guy might kill me. Uh-huh. Like it was this weird. It was this weird blend. I think of of the women. The 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 femme fatale needs to be aggressive, but not aggressive enough that the guy doesn't trust her right. a, initially, because there's still like this vulnerability of like, oh well, we we as men we're the protectors, and this idea would never, you know, they I guess they hadn't read their uh, Macbeth, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. and so so there's this. The idea, because when there's another man, especially with with a lot of these characters, uh, because they're kind, they're not very trusting in the first place. If a man comes in with a get rich quick, uh, get rich quick scheme, quick scheme, um, <laughs> then uh, then I think they would just narrow their eyes and say like, uh, I don't, I don't trust it. Um, whereas with with the woman, I think they initially are just like, oh well, who's this? Like they're they're attracted before she even opens her mouth. And then all of a sudden, she just sweetens the deal by saying hundred thousand dollars. What do you think of that? Uh-huh. And uh, and then before you know it, the, it's like the two pronged attack of I get this woman and I get this money, and it's great. And it's and it's but the two kind of do have to go together. I've never seen a film noir where it's just for love or just for money. Um, actually, I've seen a few where it's probably just for money. But um, yeah, the killing. Oh, the killing. Yes, yes. But that's I view that as I guess that's a film noir. I view it more of a as a heist film. But um, it is a heist film, but it's still in the same genre of like, yeah, uh, guys getting into a scheme to get money and it sort of yeah, bo- ballooning out of control. Yeah, which is actually very similar to the Asphalt Jungle. Now that I think about which it, I which I haven't seen. It's oh, it's wonderful. But uh, it's you know, it's a 
it's still a heist, but uh, one of the guys who invariably uh, someone's going to start getting a little too greedy in these films, uh-huh. and uh, and one of the guys in that uh, he starts getting greedy, but that's only to satisfy his uh, his gold digger mistress, uh-huh. um, and so uh, so there's always. I don't know. It's interesting because there's there there's always not always, but there's there's the femme fatale, but it's never them by themselves. And I mean, do you do have a an idea as to why that might be? Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to throw it to you. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of put me on the spot. But uh, um, I think if it were just about a woman, it would be. Uh, I guess it would sort of be like the Griffiths are just trying to get by. It would be oh, a little yeah. too relatable, a little too noble. Like yeah. you're doing it for love. He's just lonely, and and because the production code probably couldn't make it clear that it's just for lust or something. That's true. That's true. Um, and I guess I guess we can uh, start to. Oh Although you know what? Okay, go ahead. Uh, Scarlet Street is pretty much almost clearly just about him wanting to be with this woman. Really, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much already got the money. Ah, okay. Scarlet Street. Now I've never seen Scarlet Street, so oh, I don't, uh, I don't recall it. Yeah. Who directed that? It's Fritz Lang. Okay, that's yeah. that's what I thought. Um, okay, so I guess my uh, my theory was just blown away. Thanks, David. Well, there's always an exception to prove the rule, I suppose. Um, but uh, and I I think one of the things that we can we can move on to is uh, the serpentine nature of the plots in film noir, because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Dashiell Hammett. Uh, as a writer, I've read uh, all of his books um, and several of his short stories, and uh, and it's fascinating because I never know what's going on. Um, uh-huh. And when a book, you know, when you're reading a book, and it takes, you know, it takes me a while to read a book. So, like, let's say, but I'll be concerned. Let's say three weeks, uh-huh. which back in you know back in Chicago when I was commuting on the train all the time, three weeks not unheard of. Now it takes me like a year. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. but anyway, so. Yeah, me too. But when you're reading a book and the plot isn't making a lot of sense, you're just like, ugh, this is, this is frustrating. And you can go back a few pages and see if you can get it this time. And, and, and you do find that it does make sense. In most cases. In most cases, There's yes. There's one notable exception. There's one notable exception. We'll get there. Yeah. But, um, but with film, I think, uh, first off, it doesn't give you the option of going back uh, and yeah. rewatching it so, to make sure you've got all the, all the you know, uh, story straight. But uh, but also I think because it's only two hours of your day, as opposed to several weeks or as I mentioned a year, um, <laughs> I think it became I think it was just it's a little more acceptable to not know what's going on, provided of course that you're emotionally involved or at the very least intellectually involved. There's not a lot of emotions going on in film noir, except is greed an emotion? <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, so you you feel so much more connected. To the characters that that is why, uh, you know, for example, the Maltese Falcon, a lo- there's a there's a very labyrinthine uh, story going on. I've seen it a million times. I still don't quite understand exactly what happened, um, <laughs> but I don't it's not that I don't care. I care only in so far as it drives the story forward and I'm able to spend more time with these characters. And we take our I think we take our cues from the characters and. We understand that oh, this has an impact, even if I don't know what it is, because I can see the impact it's having on them. Yeah, but it, and also I think it's 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 an intentional part of the the tapestry of mm-hmm. of film noir that um, the this 
it's it's this it's the cynicism you know the, the, mm-hmm. or the uh the lost innocence we can't go back to what, the way it was things aren't simple anymore yeah there are forces bigger more complex and uh, than us and forces that are frankly not understandable mm-hmm. to us uh guiding everything and uh pretty much running our lives that's mm-hmm. the that's the cynicism of these films and i think that's why you get these uh insane plots where you've got the these guys who just are sort of even though they're detectives in a lot of ways they end up just sort of being carried along on the stream oh yeah yeah you, you know by, by everything that's happening they sort of they're our protagonists but in a way in a way they they give up their uh they're forced to give up their agency mm-hmm. uh by the just by the fact that everything is so overwhelming yeah and i guess it's and i mean and that's the thing is everything is like everything is complex and and in the case of of you know some of the films we've already talked about uh like the james m cain films uh I'm sorry to put it that way. Uh, he didn't write or direct them, but they're based on his novels. Um, but the uh, it always seems simple. That's the key. It has to seem simple because because mm-hmm. that I think that like the money, the woman, and the fact that it's easy. Granted, killing someone that might be difficult emotionally, but the fact of it is pr- is fairly easy. Uh-huh. And so it's like, all right, pro- this is great. Problem solved. And then of course you come to realize, you know, you you pick at this scab and you were like oh my gosh there's so much more underneath this is you know this is horrible and they can't really keep it straight and yeah i think i think it kind of keeps that it's that disillusionment of something that seems simple and then is way more complex than anybody any of the characters are equipped to deal with um except of course you know the 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 big uh the main heavy um but uh but for me yeah the uh, talking about the plot in film noir is usually winds up with me talking about the characters because uh, if you don't have the latter, the former sometimes for me is not enough mm-hmm. uh, to keep me interested. Um, and that's that to me is the big difference between the Maltese Falcon, a film that I love, mm-hmm. and the Big Sleep, a film that I don't like that much. See, I love the Big Sleep. Yeah, and I don't care that it doesn't make sense. That's the yeah. one. That's the one we were talking about earlier that we alluded to. And I'll tell the. Probably apocryphal story, but that I yeah. love telling. Yeah, where uh, uh, where uh, Bogart's reading the script and he goes up to to Howard Hawks um, and he says, "You know, I've read this thing a couple times. I can't figure out who killed who killed the chauffeur." Mm-hmm. And Howard Hawks is like, "I don't know. You know, William Faulkner adapted the thing. Let's call him. He wrote the screenplay. Let's call him. Call William Faulkner." And and he and they say, "Who killed Who killed the driver?" And he says. You know, I just wrote it the way it was written. I'll, I'll call Raymond Chandler. We'll see what he has to say. Yeah. Calls up Raymond Chandler and says, uh, who killed the driver in the story? And he goes, I don't know. Butler did it. <laughs> okay. And that's the thing is I hear that. I've heard that story. Uh-huh. At some point, I'm sure every film person and certainly any film noir fan has heard that story. I, I can't see how it's possibly true. It's probably not. But at the same time, like... it is the essence of the role that story plays in film noir where ultimately yeah. it's just like... Uh well, what is more important is this character needs to be dead. Yeah, <laughs> that's what needs to happen. And so uh, I don't know, heart attack. Um, but no one knows that. Uh, and so, uh, and that's the thing is, uh, the the story actually isn't necessarily what turned me off of the Big Sleep. It was more just a function that, like, aside from Bogart, there was there were really no characters that kept me interested. Whereas, you know, you look at Maltese Falcon. I'm sorry to compare the two, but those are the two that I think. Uh, are kind of the essence of the, you know, the 
the detective. I mean, you got Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. And so you've got like the two leading detectives uh-huh. uh, in film noir. Well, uh, the thing with the big big sleep is that it's almost uh, it's sort of like okay, it was directed by Howard Hawks, as we know, as we as we all know, <laughs> um, and he made like he made Bringing Up Baby, right? Yeah, I'm right about that, right? I think so. Yes, yeah, he made Bringing Up Baby, which is sort of like it's just the concentrated essence of the screwball comedy. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of what he was. I don't think Howard Hawks has a whole lot to say uh, about society or anything as a director. I think he's just uh, he's just there to make sort of quintessential versions of genres uh, hmm. and do them well. And I think that's what the, that's maybe why I like The Big Sleep so much is that it's everything that noir is, yeah, in one place and multiplied multiplied by ten. You know, and that's why The Big Sleep is the the main inspiration for The Big Lebowski. Yeah, uh, which is sort of a noir spoof mm-hmm. um and maybe we'll talk about big lebowski next week yeah um and that's what i love about about the big sleep is that it, it's just it's so again concentrated it's intense yeah and constant and it doesn't let up and it's a lot of fun and and yeah uh i as i i don't say i, I got bored very often but i just i i just didn't care and there wasn't I enough to keep me. this goes back to our... I keep interrupting you, but uh, now you know how it feels. That's a joke. That's a joke. I know you're not going to be able to sleep tonight because I said that because you're neurotic. <laughs> it was just a joke. Um, uh, but it, it goes back to our disagreement over Public Enemies, you know, which is a film that you didn't like because it didn't have the character elements. And I loved it from uh, a formalist point of view, you know? And I'm going to keep talking because I know what's going to happen. I know that as soon as I stop talking, you're not going to say anything. <laughs> and you're just going to leave me <laughs> twisting in the wind for as long as it takes. David, did you just go to the bathroom? All right, we're going to take a break, everybody. And we're back. Um, that was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that was we we don't edit very often on the show. That was maybe like the third time in the history of the show yeah. that we've ever edited anything. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> as far as anyone knows. Um, <laughs> uh, and for the record, when Tyler said, "David, did you just go to the bathroom?" I physically got up and went to the restroom. He yeah. wasn't saying, "David, did you just piss your pants?" <laughs> uh, like dirty rotten scoundrels. Yeah. Um, I forgot where we were headed. Oh, uh, one thing that I was going to say is that. Uh, that it's, it it is it is odd that uh, yeah I mean sometimes formalism and, and just talking about something from a purely academic standpoint um, that sometimes isn't enough for me and I realize that as as a, an aspiring critic maybe I should take off aspiring <laughs> donations don't count anyway uh, as you're, an aspiring amateur critic as an amateur critic oh, that sounds insulting though if you're not getting paid you're an amateur critic non professional okay as a non professional critic everybody um, <laughs> the as a non professional amateur. <laughs> ah, I've done this wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's an amateur aspirer. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're so very pleased with ourselves, David. Um, I, I probably should be more about uh, just purely academic exercises, but uh, but frankly, like whenever Steven Soderbergh does them, it often mm-hmm. leaves me cold. Yeah. Um, but uh, because usually, if something is only an academic exercise, they're they're not going to put the the like the passion into creating the characters and all that, they'll they'll do what what is required, and they'll have they'll probably have fun with it. 
and I realize that I'm in the minority on on the Big Sleep. But like, also, I've tried to read. I've I've read James M. Cain. I've read Rex Stout. I've read Dashiell Hammett. I've read Mickey Spillane. Mickey Spillane, by the way, not the best. But I no, did that read. That guy it. was not a good writer. Not a good writer. <laughs> Every it, it was it was his his commitment to just just getting his ideas out there, mm-hmm. not necessarily worried about the form that I kind of respect. And every once in a while, you would get it just a bit of brilliance. Uh-huh. Uh, like I read a, a now I can't remember a One Lonely Night, I believe is the name of the uh, Mike Hammer novel that I read. And um, excuse me, there's a part where uh, uh, Mike Hammer is going to uh, kill a communist. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a fun thing to say just now. Um, and uh, uh, not he's not just a communist. He like that guy also he also killed something because right. that's what he does as a communist. Uh-huh. And uh, and just the way that, and it's always told from uh, Mike Hammer's point of view. And so he basically he has his gun in his face. And he says, "I gave him a minute. Uh, I gave him a few seconds to realize that he was about to die, and then I shot him." <laughs> it's like that's horrifying. <laughs> that's really terrible. Um, but but like it's little moments like that. It's just like there's a certain degree of poetry in that. I'm sure Mickey Spillane would punch me in the face if I said that. But uh, anyway, so I've read all these authors, and you know, but I was able to finish a full book by uh, Mickey Spillane. I've never been able to finish a book by Raymond Chandler. I don't his I don't know what it is about his his prose, his characters, his stories. They just never keep my interest, and I've mm-hmm. never I've never finished a book by him. Uh, Although oddly enough, I did enjoy Robert Altman's version of uh, uh, the Long Goodbye. Right. But uh, but again, there was kind of a twist on that, um, and so yeah, it's uh, I don't know. Big Sleep just never did it for me. Whereas something like Maltese Falcon, you got Joel Cairo, you got Casper Gutman, you got I mean, you've got all kinds of characters that just are so fascinating and admittedly kind of heightened, kind of stylized. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really keeps you. It really keeps me involved because I, you know, and and in Double Indemnity, you've got, you know, you got Fred McMurray's character who's wonderful, but you also have that amazing Edward G. Robinson character mm. Keys, and at the very least, you've got him that you can cling to if the two leads uh, are not, you know, if they're just a little too odious for you. <laughs> um, and so that, to me, the just the characters and just the the colorful characters that you find in the worlds that that these directors and writers create. That is that's what's always been most rewarding for me, and um, and it occurs to me actually that as we are now uh, well over an hour, we've not talked about the visual aspect at all. Yeah, but at this point we've we've set up so much of what they're about that mm-hmm. uh, that it'll, it'll be easy to to get to okay. to, to relate. You know, okay. it's it's shadowy. Yeah, it's uh, uh, what is referred to as high contrast, mm-hmm. meaning that there's like hot bright spots yeah. and deep dark shadows. Yeah. Uh there's also uh an ex- it's an expressionistic uh sort of angular and towering aspect to the production mm-hmm. design and to the shadows so that everything looks like it's bigger and can maybe kind of leaning over our protagonist yeah. and crowding them and 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 crouching in on them. Yeah, I mean, it owes a lot to... I, I don't know if the episode's available. I keep making reference to episodes we, that people can't listen to. Uh, but we did an episode on German Expressionism, and it owes a lot to that. Uh-huh. Um, just to, that the, to that episode. To that episode. <laughs> I think most things owe a lot to that episode. It was pretty good. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, it's just the just the paranoia, where it's it's just... It, it really takes its cues from, from the stories and... Uh, 
or may, I don't know. I think that I think the two just go hand in hand. I don't know if one is necessarily informed by the other, mm-hmm. um, but, but it just ask, makes what sense. What I've often wondered is, um, when these people, when James M. Cain and Dashiell Hammett were writing these stories in mm-hmm. the '30s before film noir was a thing, yeah, do you think in their mind they were picturing a German expressionistic type of world? Uh, I'm not sure. I've, if they I've would... honestly wondered that a lot. You know, I I would venture to say no. I think they probably saw it as like a hard bitten realism, uh-huh. um, and and every once in a while you'll you'll find that there's actually not a great deal of like heavy expressionistic elements in you know Maltese Falcon, um, and so I, I feel like uh, I feel like you know Hammett and, and Chandler and Kane like I think they were just creating like this is a harsh world, uh-huh. but it's the real world, and that's that's I think that's probably what they imagined, and so. I, I don't think it was incredibly stylized. Uh, One of the in best there. examples of the expressionistic film noir style actually is a movie that we talked about way earlier at the beginning of the episode. Um, Carol reads the Third Man. Oh yeah, uh, which has all that. It has the just, just insane a- angles that mm-hmm. that I, I when I watch the Third Man, I think that must have looked nuts to an audience at that time who wasn't used to you know like yeah. now we've got cameras that can do all kinds of crazy uh, yeah. things and and. But just the idea of a of a just really drastic Dutch angle yeah. must have like seemed just gonzo to people at the time. Maybe I mean by the time Third Man came along, um, I think there had been enough uh, there had been enough introduction to that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, at the very least through the work of Orson Welles, which I guess was never that mainstream. Yeah, but Third Man certainly was, or at least it got uh, kind of widespread yeah. uh, acceptance. Um, but also, uh, I believe Third Man won the cinematography Oscar oh. that year. Uh, it was the only one that it won, um, and and so I think I think not only again, not only were audiences seeing this and being like, "Oh man, that's that's interesting," but I think Hollywood itself said, "Wow, there's really there's something to this type of photography. It's really it's gorgeous, and yet it's it's not there." purely to be gorgeous it uh-huh. really is there to heighten the emotion of the audience and kind of so that we can mirror the emotion of the characters um and their their jagged paranoid souls and all that sort of thing um were there any uh now real quick are there any films that that you actually just off the top of your head would recommend i mean you've talked about gun crazy gun crazy and, is the okay the, because in in general uh I, I feel like i did i know we get emails sometimes from people who are Either, like, in high school, or maybe you're maybe you're older, but are just getting into film. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of those kind of emails, like, "Thanks for whatever." It, I'm not going to yeah. blow smoke up my own ass. But we get nice emails, and I just uh, really these films need to be. I've said this before. Need to be a scene, not as an assignment or as homework or right. as like these are important films. I should watch them. Yeah. Uh, you you really need to just try and enjoy them and also try and understand what what the audience at the time had and hadn't right. seen up until then right um because if you just a movie a movie like the postman always rings twice because it's a classic has this sort of in people's in the public's eye has this sort of veneer on it like oh this is classic hollywood you yeah. know yeah, and you need to not go in with that because if you 
are seeing it that way, you won't really be able to see how seedy it is, yeah. you know, because you won't be expecting that yeah. at, at all. And, and so that that's my, my main thing is, yes, these are classic films. And yes, now they're accepted as classics by everyone, you know, mm-hmm. but you really have to see them with the understanding that they they weren't necessarily being uh, enjoyed by middle America, or at least not in the same way. Yeah. That that uh, a Gone with the Wind or a Casablanca was right, right. That, that's that's what I have to say about film noir. And I would actually say Casablanca, though I do love the film. Um, you know, you look like look at that, and look at how look at how those characters uh, interact with each other, and look at the story. There is an inherent nobility, even though a lot of the characters are criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and even our main character is, you know, he's seen as as a uh, this very stoic kind of guy who is kind of selfish. You know, he sticks his neck out for nobody. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, he is very Spoilers. noble. Spoilers. Spoilers, sorry. <laughs> he is a very noble person. Um, so you look at that and then look at something like, you know, uh, Maltese Falcon, which actually came out before Casablanca. But you look at that and then look at, you know, Out of the Past or Double Indemnity. Look at the difference in the, in the, the heroes or, one could say, anti-heroes uh-huh. where... All of a sudden, you look at Sam Spade and you look at Rick Blaine. I mean, it's done. They're both Bogart, done in a very similar style, but it's so very, very different. Mm-hmm. Sam Spade has a code of honor, but it's such a. It's like, oh, bah, my partner has been killed. I guess I better bring his killer to justice. Admittedly, I was sleeping with his wife. Yeah, but I have. But this code is the only thing I have, so I will cling to it. And you look at that and you think, like, oh, I guess that's honorable. Ah, I can't get on board with any of this, you know, and that's so you look at that. That's the thing is don't look at the don't look at the films compared to movies now, not to imply that the movies now are better than then. Just you can't do that. You have to compare it to the films that were similar at the time. It's kind of like I've heard someone say like, oh, man, that episode of The Simpsons wasn't that good. But the worst episode of The Simpsons is still better than most other shows you can only ever compare simpsons like if you compare simpsons to itself then you gain the proper perspective but you still have to realize oh man compared to like what almost everybody else is doing this is you know very unusual and so with film noir yeah you really do need to look at it in the context of the time but still you know i mean I, I stumbled not making, on... Not that we're making apologies for these films. Not at all. I mean, I, I stumbled on Maltese Falcon by the cover. It, the cover looked interesting, and so I just, you know, I I watched it when I was uh, like 14 or 15, and I was like, this looks interesting to me. So I watched it, and it was, I was just bowled over by it. You know, mm-hmm. same with Double Indemnity, same with, I mean, almost all the movies that we've talked about, and it's just, they're just astounding. And But yeah, if you do go in, oddly enough, Big Sleep... That one I viewed as a homework assignment. That one, because I didn't see it until college, and I was taking this film noir screenwriting class, and it wasn't a homework assignment, but they said, you really need to see this. Uh If you're going to do this, you need to see this. And I had heard about it, I'm like, ah, that sounds good. But it just never, it just didn't do it for me. (laughs) And so I think think that attitude might have played a role. I still don't think it's a film for you. Uh, That's that's also uh, a possibility, but... uh, but anyway, so okay. So that said, I wanted this to be a quick one. It never happens. Never happens. Um, 
I think it'd be a shame actually if we if we shortchanged film noir. Like yeah. I, I I'm glad it was a longer episode. Um. So okay, to wrap up, we already wrapped up, but to do yeah. the 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 stuff we have to get out of the way at yeah. the end of the show. Uh, June fifth, Meltdown Comics on Sunset Boulevard, eight p.m. Five dollars to get in, free beer. Sklar Brothers, Mike Schmidt, Paul Goebel, Paul Rust, Ed Salazar, David Bax, Tyler Smith. Yeah. Uh, free beer. I think I said. Yeah. Um, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to be a great time. Um, in addition to that, you can find us at battleshippretension.com or in iTunes under Battleship Pretension. Please subscribe if you're not subscribed or write us a review. A nice one, please. Thank you. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension or my other podcast in iTunes under previously on. Mm-hmm. You can find Tyler at twitter.com slash more lessons, yeah. which is the Twitter feed for his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at yeah. morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes. Yeah. What do you have to say about More Than One Lesson this week? Well, uh, it's 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 not necessarily a weekly show, yeah. so sometimes there will be a long stretch between episodes, but uh, I did do, uh, I did do uh, two episodes in fairly rapid succession with a third one to follow probably in uh, in uh, like a week or so. Uh, I talked about Steven Soderbergh's The Informant mm-hmm. uh, as well and compared it to uh, the Billy Ray film Shattered Glass. And then I also talked uh, in another episode I talked about uh, Iron Man mm-hmm. and compared it to uh, a film that I love called The Shadow. And, uh, and again, for those that don't know, it is film criticism kind of from a Christian perspective, so be ready for that. But, uh, yeah, so those are the, the, the newest episodes. Right. So there you go. Thank you, David. Uh, okay. Um, that's where you can find us on the Internet or what? what we talked I, about previously on. Yeah, I mentioned it. Oh, man, I totally zone out. <laughs> um, that's where you can find us on the Internet or in person uh, June 5th. That's all right. That's right. Comics. Uh, we'll get you next time. Bye.